Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As journalists, we cringe at studies like the one released this week by Northwestern University's Medill School. It found that by 2025, one-third of American newspapers that existed roughly two decades ago will be out of business. On average, more than two newspapers disappear each week. Today, there are fewer than 6,500 newspapers, both dailies and weeklies, left in the U.S. And digital news replacements aren't filling the gap. These growing news deserts in our country are also dangerous for democracy. Coming up where we live, we hear from journalists and former current reporter Daniela Altamari. The Current and other Tribune newspapers are owned by hedge fund Alden Capital, which has contributed to the news desert crisis with its aggressive cost-cutting measures and elimination of news jobs in several areas of the country. We want to hear from you. What news do you consume? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page. Or find us on Twitter, at Where We Live. My first guest on Zoom is Penelope Muse Abernathy, visiting professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. Penny, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, the Washington Post, uh, Margaret Sullivan wrote this week that you, quote, may be the nation's foremost expert on what media researchers call news deserts. So walk us through some key takeaways, Penny. Well, first, let me say uh, uh, Margaret Sullivan is incredibly gracious, and I really appreciate the comment. But she also has done quite a bit of uh, research on what is going on on local news. Uh, let me let me put this in perspective we talk a lot about two Americas. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, split with us split politically, culturally, um, and um, economically. Uh, there's also a split digitally, which I can talk about a little bit later. But what is most concerning to me about this latest report, I've done uh, five reports over the past seven years, is that there appears to be a growing disparity between um communities that have local news, have access to local news, have the resources to support local news, and communities in the U.S., and we are a vast country, but communities in the U.S. that do not have a local news. Um, you can almost hear the sucking sound going out of uh, the, uh, the news ecosystem uh, as we lose reporters as well as newspapers and don't have, as you pointed out earlier, uh, enough digital outlets to fill the void. When we talk about news deserts, so what have you found in terms of where in our country people are most impacted? How many are we talking about? Well, I think it might be uh, helpful to first uh, talk about what to, what is a news mm-hmm. desert, and that is a place we've defined as where residents have very limited access to the sort of news and information they need 
uh, to make wise everyday decisions as well as long-term decisions uh, that affect the lives of future generations. So we have found that roughly on this latest report, roughly a fifth of the population or 70 million people uh, live in either a news desert or at one, one that is at, is at risk of becoming a news desert. Uh, most likely the news desert is affecting communities uh, that are economically struggling. Many of those communities are much poorer than the U.S. Uh, the household income is much less and the poverty rates much higher than the U.S., uh, and it also en encompasses uh, traditionally um, underserved communities, uh, especially minority communities in this country. When we think about how we got here, uh, when we look at company consolidation. That's a major factor, Penny? Uh, it, it is. In fact, that's the way I began tracking uh, the number of news outlets here. Uh, post the uh, 2008 recession, we had a new type of owner enter the market here in the U.S. Uh, I call them invest investment entities. Uh, it includes hedge funds, it includes private equity groups, uh, and uh, they were very different from traditional newspaper owners, uh, many of whom had started as small family operations that grew to be publicly traded chains. Um, you, they had names of the family founder or the name of the flagship uh, uh, in the uh, title of what their company was. Uh, these have uh, different sort of names like Alden Capital, uh, like uh, Gatehouse. It, uh, it's not something that says uh, uh, you can reach out and touch the journalist on the other end of the uh, phone. And what we found is those, uh, those largest chains, they become kind of mega chains now, uh, have been the most aggressive in both uh, shuttering newspapers and laying off journalists over the past uh, two decades or decade. You're talking with us here in Connecticut. So how does Connecticut compare when we think about news deserts, Penny? Well, actually, New England uh, fares quite well uh, compared to places in the South. I worry most about places in the South, which uh, tends to have some of the poorest states in the country, as well as in the Midwest. Um, Europe, uh, Connecticut is on the East Coast. It's much more compact uh, and doesn't have these, uh, Texas, for instance, has, if I'm trying to remember, something like 254 counties, whereas Connecticut, you can count them almost on uh, two hands, the number of counties that you have. Uh, in the Midwest, you may have very few counties, but sometimes those counties encompass tens of thousands of uh, square miles. So in, in general terms, if you compare it to other states, Connecticut comes out quite well. That doesn't mean there aren't gaps in uh, the flow of local news um, in, in Connecticut or in New England as a whole. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think that one of the uh, hopes I've had for the research I do is that we can see where things are working and, uh, and what is working <clears throat> in reaching uh, communities and also identify where the gaps are. So we need to target uh, funding toward that. You're hearing Penelope Muse Abernathy, visiting professor at Northwestern University Medill School of Journalism, as we talk about uh, local news and the fact that so many newspapers have shuttered and the consequences of that in terms of making sure that citizens are informed about what's happening around them. We'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Penny, I asked you about Connecticut. There's this great resource uh, from you and your team. We just uh, tweeted out at Where We Live. Uh, you 
usnewsdeserts.com where people can look at the state of Connecticut and see, depending on what county or what region, uh, the, 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 the amount of newspapers or lack thereof uh, that exist. And I believe Tallinn County does not have one local newspaper that exists. Right. And I, right. I was just on confirming again, uh, there's none listed that we could find. Uh, it might be covered by an adjacent, but it, it doesn't look like it. And, and Tallinn is, is quite um, uh, similar to what we find uh, uh, in many states. It's, it's kind of a border uh, county. It, it shares a border with another state. Uh, and uh, they're often called orphan counties uh, in, in many places, uh, orphan counties, because uh, they uh, often get the TV signal from uh, regional television in other states. So that puts them in a distinct disadvantage in when it comes to voting in elections and the like. Uh, I happen to live in a border county in North Carolina, and I get the three signals from the South Carolina uh, TV stations, which makes it very difficult to even understand what's going on state legislature. Increasingly, as we lose newspapers, however, we're beginning to see orphan counties uh, that have, don't have a newspaper. Uh, in that county. In fact, the only newspaper that really serves that area may be a newspaper in an, in uh, the next state. So, I mean, we need to think about uh, it, it, the news ecosystem is somewhat complex, uh, but in, it's also very simple. Uh, and I start with this observation. We are a huge country. And in the for the past 200 years, we have really depended on newspapers and uh, to be the prime, if not the sole source of the local news and information that we get, we need every day. The, someone who covers the school board, someone who covers uh, the county commissioner. And when we lose a newspaper, we lose that journalist that uh, informs us about the decisions that are being made that really will impact our everyday lives. So it, it is a, uh, and, and because we do not have the digital substitutes, it becomes a real issue as to how we get people informed and uh, and how they can then make wise decisions. And what happened uh, during uh, the first two years of uh, this pandemic? We know there were many headlines about the acceleration or the demise of local news uh, with hundreds of print outlets that shuttered. What did your research find? Well, I mean, I think the good news is there were quite a number of people that wrung their hands and said, oh, this is going to be an extinction level event for newspapers, we didn't have the extinction level event. And I think part of that may have been because of the payroll protection plan, uh, which allowed, which gave uh, loans that were forgiven to small businesses that kept their doors open. Uh, but we did continue to lose at the same rate we've been losing at, so you mentioned in the beginning, we've been losing an average of two papers a week uh, over the last, um, uh, since 2005. Uh, it, and to put that kind of in perspective, you can lose a newspaper two ways. You can also lose a digital site two ways. One is you just announce you haven't got the money to meet payroll and you're going to stop publishing. Another is it gets bought by one of the large chains. It, the large chain then merges it with another uh, uh, new weekly or newspaper. And uh, then that weekly gets merged with the daily. And soon it's kind of a vanishing act. Uh, soon you look around, there's no longer a building where the uh, newspaper was published, uh, the one one or two editor, uh, reporters and journalists that covered that area have been reassigned to the the home page paper or base, and uh, you're left without uh, any kind of coverage in that community. 
Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk about the state of local news and how news deserts or places with limited access to news have grown in the U.S. Now, we think about how uh, users consume news, and obviously uh, the digital platform is huge, but it's not necessarily the case that digital news is filling these gaps when we talk about uh, the loss of local news coverage. To learn more with us now on Zoom is Nick Newman, Senior Research Associate at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, one of the lead authors of the annual Reuters Digital News Report. Nick, welcome to our show. Thanks very much. Very good to be with you. So tell us about uh, the de- declines in news consumption that you observed in this year's report, specifically when we talk about the U.S., We've been running um, surveys of news consumption and attitudes for more than 10 years. So, I mean, I I think just thinking about those 10 years, we've just seen extraordinary changes and and broadly pretty much in every country, including the US. We see these decline in traditional sources in terms of consumption. So, you know, Penny was talking about the supply side, but in terms of consumption, you know, obviously far fewer people uh, consuming print, feeling print is relevant to their lives, um, and far people, fewer people now consuming television and linear radio too. And uh, online during that period is not making up the gap. It stayed pretty much um, flat. And, and I think that's partly because um, people who use online news regularly anyway tend to be richer and, and, and better educated. So we've been talking about divides already. Uh, so online sort of pushes you towards people who are super informed. And then what we also find in this year's report is growing numbers of people who are just disconnecting from news. So in the U- US, 15% uh, say that they don't consume any of those sources of news, you know, print, television, online, including social media or radio. Uh, and then we also find a, a very large group of people who do consume the news every week, but also say they selectively avoid the news sometimes or often. So this idea of news fatigue or news avoidance is also growing. So partly it's a problem on the on the supply side and partly it's a problem on the demand side. Mm. We think about the people who are avoiding news. Uh, is it because of, you know, the, the tone of the news or what's happening in the world uh, that they can't stomach? Or does it have to do with when we think about uh, uh, the political spectrum and how people feel in terms of how stories are covered? Yeah, I think it's all of those things. I mean, uh, in the US, of the people who say they avoid the news, which is uh, 42% or so, half of those say the news has a negative effect on their mood. Um, And, you know, that's particularly the case for women and for younger people as well. So under 35s talk a lot about, you know, news creating anxiety. Um, So, you know, this, this idea that news is actually bad for your health, news is supposed to be good for democracy and informing you so you can make uh, sensible decisions. Um, but then you also have that, particularly in the US, you have the idea of, of, of um, you know, the news being biased in this incredibly polarised uh, society. So 39% of people who say they avoid the news say because they can't, you know, it's untrustworthy or biased. So effectively people, you know, it's, it, you, you can't trust what you what you see or what you read. And the U.S. is just, uh, you know, much more polarized in that sense than than, than other parts mm-hmm. of, of the world that we look at. Uh, other people talk about, you know, leading to arguments, which relates to the previous point, or or just feeling powerless, you know, in the way, in in the face of these enormous global stories, pandemics, climate change, Ukraine, particularly the sort of national level, people really feel that, um, you know, they, they feel powerless, that, that they don't, they have no sense of agency. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, before we get to the role of social media and the usage in the U.S., when we go, when we think about what you mentioned about uh, people who are wealthier who tend uh, to seek out news online. What's the percentage in the U.S. of people who are paying for online content, and are they more likely to be paying for multiple uh, news sites? Well, that's the other side of it. Is you know how, how um, you know the, the the employment of journalists depends on sustainable business models, and um, with the um, fall of print revenues and print circulations, uh, more of that burden has fallen on digital. And in digital, it's really hard to make money. First, people tried through advertising, and now increasingly um, they're trying through subscriptions or membership at a local level, perhaps or donations, which is you know some, something that's growing. Um, but it, but it's it's really tough. I mean, in the US, the vast majority of people aren't prepared to pay or contribute uh, to any news organization. So only 19% pay. That's slightly above the average across the countries that we look at, um, but still pretty low. I mean, some we are starting to see on the positive side, you know, you obviously you've heard about, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post and that huge growth of subscriptions that we saw just after Donald Trump was elected. But what you have now um, is, you know, people are starting to take out sort of two or three subscriptions, partly because the sort of cheaper options available. So you might pay for the New York Times and a local newspaper or at least donate something. Or maybe, uh, you know, an individual journalist writing a Substack newsletter. This is sort of something that's grown over the last few years. I think there's a million subscriptions now where people are paying for newsletters in the US. So we're starting to see some, some interesting new ways in which we might deliver local news or specialty news. When you mentioned uh, paying for news in different ways, I was thinking about Substack uh, and how that may appeal to younger Americans versus uh, getting the, the, the daily email in your inbox and which demographic that uh, appeals to, Nick. Uh, well, e yeah, I think email and Substack doesn't really appeal to young young people generally. Mm. Uh, email is for in our research is is very much for older people, and young people are spending most of their time in in social platforms, and they also expect news to be free. They expect it to be frictionless, and uh, you know a lot of the way in which the, the 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 news is is produced and the way it's delivered over the internet just doesn't meet meet that target. So when we talk about social media, Facebook still king where people are getting their news. Yes, it is. It is still huge, and particularly in the U.S., actually, it remains very important. Um, but you know, I think what we're seeing, particularly with younger groups, you know, what we call social natives, so people who've grown up with social media, is uh, embracing very different, uh, more visual, mobile networks. So Instagram, uh, over the last couple of years, has grown enormously, but also just in the last two years, really TikTok. And TikTok was originally just somewhere for a bit of fun and entertainment, but over the last year, we've seen with Ukraine, with you know the Amber Heard um, Johnny Depp trial, for example. Uh, really news is coming onto that platform and it's not just traditional media companies in fact hardly at all it's a lot of the news that's conveyed is through influencers um, and social media personalities so you know the media the news is now being mediated in different ways for young people as well and that's another challenge for for media organizations because there's virtually no business model there for uh, for them and they need people to come to their websites or apps and uh, that's not how young people want to consume news Again, that's Nick Newman, Senior Research Associate at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. Penny, I'd love to hear uh, you respond to what Nick has shared here. 
Well, I, I think first off, uh, let me um, make a point about what we've seen when we've analyzed um, uh, what the news that uh, traffics on uh, on the internet or on social media, and um, you know, more than ninety percent of it is national. Uh, we're very polarized, as Nick mentioned, in the U.S. politically. Uh, and uh, that just kind of adds to, I think, a sense of fatigue. If you get local news on a um, on your uh, uh, on the on digitally, invariably it's a Facebook group or some other kind of citizens group where it comes with a lot of opinion. Uh, and so I think that it, a lot of the fatigue that we see right now uh, gets back to the notion there's just a total uh, loss of uh, and lack of local news. Uh, whether you're trying to find out whether the pandemic is um, uh, affecting your community, whether you're trying to find out something as simple as who's running for local office. So I think that part of uh, it's also interesting to me, as we've done, there have been quite a number of surveys done in the U.S. Uh, the level of trust in news media has gone down steadily uh, and, and somewhat alarmingly, especially for national organizations. But it's and while it's decreasing for local, it's still as much higher. So I think part of the solution here is figuring out how you get the content back in the news content back into the ecosystem. And secondly, how you deliver it so people can uh, can actually uh, 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 consume it in a way that uh, makes uh, the news that they're reading relevant to their everyday lives. And you're listening to Where We Live as we talk about state of local news. I want to thank Nick Newman again for joining us. We're going to link out to uh, the annual Reuters Digital News Report. He was one of the lead authors on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Nick Newman, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. And staying with us is Penny Abernathy, a visiting professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. Penny and her team track local journalism trends, highlighting what's at stake for our democracy and the possibility so of reviving the local news landscape. Coming up, we're going to hear from Hearst, Connecticut Media Group, which has expanded in our state, including the digital statewide news site CT Insider. Hearst Senior Vice President of Content and the Editor-in-Chief joins us after the break. You can join us, too. What news do you consume? 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. 
For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. The news landscape has changed dramatically in our country from a time when most households received a local newspaper. Today, newspapers are vanishing an average of more than two a week, according to a new study by Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. The study's lead author is my guest today, Penny Abernathy, visiting professor at Northwestern. She says we should be concerned that news deserts are expanding, impacting 70 million Americans. Now, earlier, Abernathy shared that Connecticut's news landscape isn't as dire as other regions of the country, but there is one county, Tallinn, that doesn't have any local newspapers. Now, listeners are also familiar with the reduced number of reporters at the Hartford Current. Two decades ago, there were nearly 400 news staff. That number comes from former Current reporter Mark Pasniokas, now at the Connecticut Mirror. The Current and other Tribune newspapers are now owned by hedge fund Alden Capital. We reached out to the Hartford Current, and its executive editor, Helen Bennett, tells us they've hired at least a dozen full-time newsroom employees since March, including one photojournalist and one Hartford City reporter, those positions had been unfilled. Now, Hearst Connecticut Media Group has made huge investments expanding news coverage in the state. Joining us now on Zoom is Wendy Metcalf, Senior Vice President of Content and Editor-in-Chief of Hearst Connecticut Media Group. Wendy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I mentioned these huge investments, so tell us about them. We're really excited at Hearst, Connecticut, because we do have a positive news story. We've made a lot of investment, as you say, and part of that has been further investment in our local news, but also statewide. So with the creation of CT Insider last year, we are trying to better serve communities across Connecticut with quality news. We talked a lot about trust today, news that you can trust. And then using the tools available to make sure that the reader experience is the best it can be. So a lot of different things go into making that work. Everything from the product experience for different platforms, from newsletters to digital to print to the magazine that we publish, to making sure that we're investing in the tools, the training, the culture of our team, that we're looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, to make sure both our content is strong, but that in also in our hiring practices and our newsroom that we are living up and we are accountable to the aspirations we have in that space. With all of those things, Lucy, we have found that it is the recipe for success in this space. And I'm pleased to say that we're on a journey to achieve 100,000 paid digital and print subscriptions And we have just recently passed uh, 40,000 digital subscriptions across Hearst, uh, Connecticut's network. So when we talk about Hearst, uh, that's uh, eight daily newspapers. You've got a community of weeklies. And then I mentioned CT Insiders. So tell us, you mentioned uh, uh, the the, the importance of increasing the the digital subscriptions. So tell us your strategy and and how are you getting people uh, to, to subscribe? So Penny mentioned something about relatable content. And one thing that we find is that residents are really interested in local news, but also statewide, as long as they can relate to the content. So we saw an opportunity to sort of spread our wings. And by doing so, not only do we cover, you know, the school board in a locality, we also do investigations and and we do data reporting and really enterprise type work to better serve society. 
So when you talk about um, news deserts or what have you, it is vital for journalists to be there as a watchdog for communities, not just to unearth important information, but to lead a conversation that can drive change. To give you an example, we recently did a months-long investigation into domestic violence. In doing so, it created a conversation, and now there is a pledge in, in Connecticut to invest around $18 million to close some of those gaps. Furthermore, I heard a story from the reporter who was leading the investigation that a woman walked into a domestic violence shelter and cited the Connecticut Post having read the investigation there. And if we can just help one person, then we have done our job. But I think that investigations like that and the frequency of them increasing is an absolute vital public service and a key role that um, new newspapers both locally and across the United States play. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we think about this digital first model, uh, that's important when we think about how you're getting information out and you know, maybe what you are highlighting versus uh, the traditional, uh, we think about having a, a handheld newspaper in front of you. Yeah, we have to be uh, where people are. You know, you've heard that saying before. Uh, we believe deeply in the print product, and there are certain readers that absolutely want to stay with it. And we are finding uh, strong retention rates, although there is a decline with print and a preference towards digital. When we speak about digital, we have to remember that it's not just the story that counts. People want a robust experience. They want different product offerings. For newsletters, for example, online, they want a complete one-stop shop to read everything that's going on in their locality. There's also a mix of free and paid content. So we try to make sure that we are innovative in that space. At the same time, what is absolutely crucial is the investment that our company is making to allow us to innovate, to look at different tools that are available to us. But at the center of all of it is the reader, both in terms of our journalism and the experience. If you get all of those things right, and you also have strong departments like our advertising department, the consumer revenue department, customer service, if they are firing on all cylinders, then there is growth in this industry. And if that investment does work, then we're already talking about uh, future investment. So it can pave the way for success down the road as well. And when you talk about investment, that means making uh, decisions that um, you know may um, call attention or think about the, the jobs that are lost. I'm wondering if you can talk about the decision to close the printing presses, uh, I believe, and that affected about 28 jobs. Uh, tell us about that decision. Yeah, and and I think that the move to Albany's uh, press is it's a more modernized press, and we do think that it's going to serve the reader well um, who desires the print product. Obviously, no one wants to uh, put jobs at risk, but I can tell you that everybody uh, was um, basically offered or, or we discussed different roles that are available, either in a distribution in Connecticut or opportunities in Houston and Albany. So that's something we take very seriously. That said, our goal is to try to add as much longevity to print as possible. And this move is something that the company saw necessary to do so. You're hearing Wendy Metcalf here on Where We Live, Senior Vice President of Content and Editor-in-Chief of Hearst Connecticut Media Group, as we talk about the investments the company has made uh, to hire more journalists to cover more of the state. You can join us. Uh, Where do you go for your news? 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Wendy, you mentioned statewide. 
is it really statewide? Because we're hearing from Penny, Tallinn County, we've got a news desert there. Yeah. So the way we balance the statewide reporting is that we're very focused on everything from topics like political out of the Capitol, enterprise. You know, I cited the investigation there. We also just launched another follow up to our policing the police investigation where we look deeply into misconduct. But it can also be things like what are the top 20 things to do in Connecticut this weekend? You know, so we try to have a broad spectrum of content as well. So when we talk about, you know, the the COVID content and people maybe needing a break from some of the hard news, we really do focus on having, you know, a large cross section of um, content and also content that different audiences may be interested in. The other thing I would say is that we are now building close to 170 editorial staff members across our newsrooms. That is incredibly robust. We also have the Hearst newspapers outlet uh, to lean on across markets, San Francisco Chronicle, Houston Chronicle. We have centralized development hubs that deepen our work through interactive maps. You know, you I, I would challenge you to look at our website and see how different it is to uh, the New York Times. You know, they're they're incredible at what they're building for the reader. So I think, you know, that gives us a lot of opportunity, but it doesn't come easy. We have to prove that the model is working. And the great thing is with the digital success that we've seen, I'll cite one really uh, incredible headline. Since the launch of our digital subscription business at the end of 2019, we have grown it every single month, almost three years in a row of digital growth. That shows that this model is working and it's because of that key collaboration and deep, deep commitment to quality local and statewide journalism. And this is just the start. We're just getting started in some respects when it comes to the statewide content. So you will have seen recently, we also uh, deepened our coverage in Greater Hartford. We just recently added two more sports reporting roles so that our game time website, which is a local sports reporting network, it's an incredible space, more than 32,000 Insta followers, you know, everything you can imagine. We're about to launch Athlete of the Week. Um, so all of those things are just sort of complementing and supplementing each other. And they really are working. And, and I'm just so delighted to, to share a story. It doesn't mean that it's easy for the industry. We are not immune to the headwinds that we're seeing, but it's about being mm -hmm. agile and entrepreneurial and just trying to pivot and keep up with the changes in technology and always serve your reader well. Uh, Penny Abernathy still with us, visiting professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. Uh, Penny, what do you think of Hearst, Connecticut's model and what you're hearing? Well, I, th I think it goes back to what we talked about in the, the latest report. Ownership can make a huge difference, uh, regardless of where you're located. Um, I love listening to what Wendy talked about, and it reinforces what has been found in, in terms of uh, the research that's been done over the past um, half, half century, uh, more or less. Uh, I, I want to start by pointing out um, one of the things we found in the report is that we've lost more than 60% of the newspaper reporters uh, in the last uh, just 15 years. And most of that loss has been, as Wendy points out, at the statewide level. And when you lose the statewide, uh, the reporters on the state and uh, metro uh, papers, what you're losing are those reporters that did the great analytical and contextual reporting on beats like education, environment, uh, and uh, the like. And you're also losing the investigative reporting that uh, Hearst is doing uh, so well. 
Uh, and I want to get back to my two favorite definitions of a newspaper. And I want to stress that I think a newspaper, when I argue for a newspaper, is not I'm not arguing for the print version. I, I like what Wendy said about meeting readers wherever they are. Uh, I'm offering, uh, arguing for the mission that the and purpose that a newspaper uh, uh, formed in a kind of pulling together this country around its democracy, democratic principles, as well as creating social uh, cohesion. So my favorite definitions of a good, strong local news organization are one that it's a problem solver. Talk, uh, again, uh, relating back to what Wendy said. And two, it shows you how you're related to people you may not know you're related to in a in the county where you live or in a different part of the state. I wanted to plug Connecticut Public's investigative unit, the accountability project, as well as uh, the company here for full transparency uh, has been expanding and growing our news operation. That gets me to the question for you, Penny. You know, you and your team are looking at um, newspapers and the decline in recent decades. But have you studied public media or what about uh, ethnic media and how they are filling the gaps? Yes, it, we have not addressed it in this report. I did uh, look at it in the 2020 report, and um, uh, I, I love coming on public uh, on uh, NPR because NPR has done a wonderful job of trying to uh, both pull together uh, important local stories, but also bind a region and the state together. Uh, NPR, if I'm remembering correctly, has added more than a thousand reporters over the last decade. Uh, and so I think that we need we need to look at all of the uh, various mechanisms of where pe- people go uh, for their news. And then uh, we have also looked at ethnic media. Uh, ethnic media is somewhat more difficult to um, uh, to track because we don't have uh, many of the uh, ethnic uh, news outlets belonging to major organizations that we can uh, quickly get a census on. But that's on our our, uh, radar to do next uh, as soon as we uh, turn from this. Mm -hmm. And when we think about uh, commercial broadcast outlets uh, and your take there, Penny, what have you you seen? Well, uh, not based on my research, but research that others have done. Um, Many, uh, when you lose a newspaper, when you lose it, don't have a digital or print substitute, which is often the case when you lose a newspaper. People turn to regional television for news. The problem there is I mentioned the problem of orphan counties, but more importantly, uh, content analysis of the uh, news that's on television has shown that more than 90 percent of it is focused on what happened in the metro area where that newspaper is located. So you're likely to get uh, a TV reporter if you have a major weather or or, uh, disaster in your neighborhood or maybe some kind of uh, fun feature story occasionally, but you're not going to get the kind of coverage that uh, Wendy was talking about that CT Insider provides as well as the the local papers. So they're providing both the local angle as well as what it means for you from uh, as a member of the state and a region. In general, how viable are for-profit models, Penny, when we think about, you know, philanthropy and, and government intervention? Well, I, 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 I don't want the whole story to be uh, depressing. I mean, what we see are examples of entrepreneurial ownership uh, um, and innovation overcoming um, uh, uh, overcoming the, the issues that um, a publisher might uh, experience in a uh, in a community. So, you know, it, it, we we can I can point to numerous examples where uh, uh, companies just like Hearst have made a commitment. 
uh, listen to what people really need and want and try to uh, innovate and uh, uh, experiment and uh, move forward going uh, with that. So I think the most um, uh, I get back again is that, you know, there are three things that are going to determine what, uh, how likely it is that you're going, the odds are in your favor. One is that, um, you know, uh, what are the demographics of the community? Is it expanding or is it affluent? Two, who is the owner and can he uh, meet the, the needs and expectations of the community? And three, is there available capital to do exactly what Wendy was talking about, which is to invest uh, in uh, both the content as well as the product uh, the product experience? You know, are you giving it to people where it is? So, you know, the, the unfortunate problem we have right now is while philanthropy has stepped up and done um, that made some major investments over the last several years, in news, which is uh, uh, a break with the past, uh, most of the large philanthropic organizations that have uh, large endowments are located in exactly the uh, the metro areas and cities that where there are also potential for-profit models. So we need to really think how we get what's working in the cities are working in those affluent areas out and uh, covered either with a for-profit, nonprofit, or maybe even some public money. Uh, to cover those. You're hearing Penny Abernathy here on Where We Live, visiting professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. She'll stay with us, but I want to thank Wendy Metcalf from Hearst, Connecticut Media Group, Senior Vice President of Content and Editor-in-Chief. Wendy, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. We're going to continue talking after the break about local news. What news sites do you rely on in your community? Tom in Manchester called in to say he subscribes to The Current and The Inquirer. Thank you, Tom. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we've been talking about newspapers and their decline in the U.S. in recent decades, leading to news deserts where millions of Americans are cut off from the news happening in their communities. As we've heard from my guest, Penny Abernathy, visiting professor at Northwestern's University's Medill School of Journalism, this has far-reaching consequences. Joining us now on Zoom is Daniela Altamari, a longtime Connecticut journalist. Uh, she's now a reporter for Route 50, a national digital outlet covering state and local government across the U.S. Daniela, welcome back to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. So when I say long time, you were at the Hartford Current after or for about 25 years and you left in March. Can you observe what you saw happening there, especially with this new ownership of hedge fund Alden Capital? Sure. I just want to quickly, though, make one point. Uh, there was some discussion earlier about Tallinn County being a news desert. I'm not quite sure that's true, uh, as referenced uh, by your caller, uh, who's in Manchester, said they subscribe to the J.I. J.I. covers Tallinn, I think, very well. Um, as it so happens, uh, well, probably the lead story or maybe the off lead story in the current today on the Connecticut page is a story about a new town manager in Tallinn. So um, I'm just not sure that Tolland is, is an example of a news desert. I think uh, the community 
of Tolland and the county, uh, the the you know small towns and the the larger communities like Vernon within Tolland County are still um, getting uh, good coverage um, from both the JI and and the current. Um, but back to your point, uh, you know, uh, what you brought me on for, yes, a um, lot of changes at the current uh, over my 25 years, um, you know, most of it not so good, but, you know, sometimes we old timers tend to put our, our rosy glasses on and say things were so great when uh, when we had 300 people in the newsroom, there were still mistakes made, there were still stories that being done that perhaps didn't always serve the readers. So I don't want to gloss over that. And, you know, looking at, at things today, yes, Alden Global Capital is not a force for good. They are uh, really just awful people. Uh, committed to wringing every last dollar out of the newspapers they own. Um, however, you know, the staff that's at The Current now is just doing a tremendous job, I think, under very difficult circumstances. They don't have a newsroom. Um, you know, there's a lot of challenges, but uh, these folks are out there every day. The Current, I still subscribe. It's still doing an amazing job uh, covering covering the state. You know, you have ex reporters like Chris Keating who are incredibly experienced. You have energetic newcomers, you have energetic old timers like Ken Goslin who are just doing an amazing job. And um, I just feel badly that the ownership of the chain is not on board with really taking the journalism that they're doing and and rewarding them for it and, and highlighting it to, to the degree it deserves. We heard uh, from a listener earlier, Daniela, uh, who described growing up in a household where they got the morning paper and the afternoon paper. Uh, she also <laughs> remembers helping her brother with his paper route. <laughs> and pretty much everyone on the street got their paper delivered. Uh, Kathy goes on to say it awkwardly made the transition to online newspapers and the multiple nonprofit news entities here. It's funny she says awkwardly uh, because, you know, there is this sense of, of the traditional way of, of getting the news and having to make that switch. It, it still probably st feels uh, strange for some. Yeah, but, you know, let's look at the advantages, too. I mean, you know, back in the day, in the in the 90s, when I started at The Current in the late 90s, you know, reporters were very removed from their communities. I mean, yeah, sure, someone could call me up, you know, or, or write a letter or visit the office. But for the most part, we didn't have the kind of interactions we do today on social media and just you know, readers, uh, they see our email address in the in the in the paper and they can reach out to us. And, you know, that's a really good thing. That's a really positive thing. So, again, you know, I don't want to I don't want to imply that things were always better in the old times. Um, in fact, when I started at The Current, the, the paper was owned by Times Mirror. We already were not. Uh, the Current was already not. Um, locally owned at that point. And people would complain about Times Mirror and how they weren't investing in the paper and how they didn't care about the communities that the current covered. So, you know, what we're seeing now is sort of the the extreme version of that. And, and it just has gotten so much worse. Um, but again, there are advantages to sort of the digital era, which is, of course, different from what's going on with the ownership. Mm. Thank you, Daniela Altamari. Penny Abernathy is still with us. You know, we've got a, another big election year uh, ahead. And when we think about, you know, all of the consequences of these news deserts as you've laid out, um, can you talk a little bit about pink slime sites and your concerns there? Well, what we've seen based on research done at uh, several universities is that um, we've seen a rise of what we would call politically backed uh, uh, organizations, um, PACs that are funding uh, 
what we call pink slime sites. They come into an area that has lost a newspaper, establish a digital site that has a name that sounds very impressive, sounds like a traditional newspaper. Uh, they don't exist for the attracting a number of people to the site. They come up, they, they rise up during elections, they die down when there's not one. Uh, their whole purpose is to uh, uh, put out something that then gets circulated on social media and then the algorithm takes over as editor. Um, you know, I, I would just want to back up to what uh, Daniela was saying about Tallinn. Um, you know, I'm not as familiar with Tallinn as I am uh, with other places in Connecticut. Um, and, uh, you know, what, where, how we judge that is where uh, newspapers are located and what kind of circulation and coverage they have in that area. I don't dispute that the current and the JI are doing everything they can with reduced staffs uh, to cover Tallinn. Uh, what we've lost, so when we've lost 60% of uh, the reporters and you don't have a newspaper there, I hear continually from the regional uh, uh, newspapers that are still in existence, they don't have coverage of, uh, of local town council meetings, important town council meetings or routine ones. Uh, and the other part we found uh, in the past from research is that the good thing about uh, our ecosystem is that we had uh, people on the ground on those weeklies kind of covering those meetings. And then you had the, the umbrella coverage, the fantastic umbrella coverage that so many of the prize winning uh, regional and state papers provided, which was to come in uh, routinely, have people roaming those areas routinely and writing about it. So, you know, we we need to think about how we, it's not so much about newspapers, I want to stress again, but how we rebuild and sustain local journalism so that it fulfills the purpose of what a strong newspaper uh, should have been doing uh, in, uh, and and so some did very well in the, in the past. Um, uh, you know, and that is vitally important, I think, as we look to uh, to elections, uh, strong regional and state newspapers have played an invaluable uh, role in many state elections, as well as local elections uh, in vetting the candidates. And I mean, it, it, you talk about um, an overload It's an overload to try to figure out many, in many cases who's running for office uh, and uh, what they, their stand is. Mm-hmm. Again, you've been hearing Penny Abernathy here on Where We Live, visiting professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism. Thank you, Penny. We'll be linking to the work that you and your team are doing, uh, tracking uh, these important trends. We appreciate your time today on the show. Well, thank you very much for discussing this important issue because, it, because as you say, it's very important to our democracy. And Danielle Altamari, always a pleasure to hear from you, now a reporter for Route 50, a national digital outlet covering state and local government across the U.S. Daniela, thanks. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Tess Terrible was on the phones today. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Please have a great and safe long weekend. <laughs>